Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. for sharing your time, your energy, and your interest in, and curiosity with me and my guests. I'm looking forward to today. Hope you are too. I do appreciate your time. I know how precious it is to everyone, and I totally am honored that you do spend the time listening to my wonderful guests that come on to this show. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. He and his wife, Deb, are native storytellers, and you can find them on the Internet. You just Google Ken Quiethawk, and you will come up with amazing um, websites that he's a part of. They're native storytellers, and they preserve history in a very special way, and it's a way that we all should be aware of because it, it holds a great richness, a lot more than uh, the published books do for sure. My guests today are Sarin and Azra Bertrand. Uh, she is a visionary creatrix and spirit keeper um, with a degree in English literature and modern philosophy who's dedicated to restoring the lost global feminine wisdom traditions. And he has a degree in biochemistry and studied at Duke University School of Medicine with research at the NIH. He's been a pioneering doctor and mystic for over two decades, following the feminine pathway of alchemy. And together, they have written an amazing book, which it was my honor to actually read. It's entitled Magdalene Mysteries, The Left-Hand Path of the Feminine Christ. It unveils the lost left-hand path of the Magdalene, the feminist Christ. They explore how this underground stream of knowledge has been carried forward over the millennia through an unbroken lineage of womb shamans, priestesses, oracles, and medicine women. They explain how the Magdalene mysteries, symbolized by the rose, have been encoded in Gnostic codices and gospels and in the highest art, literature, and agriculture of many ages, including most significantly the Ghent altarpiece. 
They examine Mary Magdalene's connection to moon wisdom, sacred harlot archetypes, and goddess in many traditions, including Isis, Anana, Asherah, Lilith, and Jezebel, and look at shamanic tantric and Cather expressions of the sacred feminine mysteries, as well as the witch and Templar roots of Robin Hood and Maid Marian. I want to welcome you to the show, Sarin. I'm so glad you're here today. Whoops. Let me try that again. I want to welcome you to the show. I didn't have your microphone on. <laughs> welcome to the show, Sarin. Oh, it's uh, great to be here, Barbara. I'm looking forward to it. Well, you, you've picked a topic that is is a really important one. I think so many people, when they think of of um, women through history and through time, um, they they have um, different mixed philosophies and 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 understandings and. The reality is that, that whether we're talking about Neanderthals or or however far back you go, all of them had um, they had philosophies, they had spirituality, they had understanding of of this world and other worlds. And I don't think we give them credit. I think so many people today look at where we are and say, well, they were all primitive. They didn't know what they were talking about. And the reality is. They probably knew more than we do. Exactly. And, you know, it's funny, Barbara, as you were, you know, just mentioning that it took me back to when I was 17 years old and studying English literature and the history of art. And me and my girlfriend went to a cafe one day and we wrote a list of all the male philosophers, artists, writers that we could think of. And obviously it was a, a long, long, long list. Uh-huh. And then we tried to write the same list of, of, you know, famous female writers, philosophers, artists. And it was a much shorter list. And especially back then when the kind of scholarship and research that we have access to now wasn't available. And this set me on this path of, of really feeling, well, I, you know, I see the women around me and their brilliance. Yet history is not reflecting that back to me. And what I knew in my bones was that the, this woman's mystery, this woman's wisdom, this woman's philosophy, it had existed. It had just either not been recorded properly or it had been erased from the record. And so then over, over decades, I you know, pursued this, this line of inquiry. And, and, and even if I tried to come off this path, something brought me back to it and really at its heart it was the secret history of women or really the secret her story of women and it's not not to say that it's just about women it's that if if the the wisdom and the philosophies we're living by are missing one half of the equation they're, mm-hmm. they're not complete and we'll have an unbalanced world so the way i explored that inquiry was that um both men and women, you know, we all need to remember these lost cosmologies, these lost philosophies of these brilliant women throughout time whose uh, teachings and wisdom has, you know, fallen off record. And, and now I really believe is the time that it's rising again for us to remember. 
Well, I'm so very glad because, you know, if it had happened the other way around, I'm not sure men would go searching for it um, because, you know, they're more of the protector and, and crusader types and, and women are have always been traditionally, for going way, way, way back, been the holders of the wisdom. And so if it had been the other way around, I think we would have lost a great deal and it's important for us, at least today, to have a balance of the two within within our psyches in order to be whole. And and I, I think what what has always fascinated me was that, that in the beginning, as far back as they can figure, um, women were held um, as magical because they could create birth and men couldn't. Mm. And and it, it, it to me it was fascinating. I, I wonder how long it took before they put two and two together and figured out that it took both to create life. But um, from the very beginning, it's been the women who had the wisdom, the patience, the compassion. You know, they, they, their brains were just set up a little bit differently, so that that's that's how they leaned. But how did this? Um, how did this truly begin? How far back could you get that you could kind of document it? Well, you know, just to put it into context of this book, this the genesis of our Magdalene Mysteries book actually came out of um, uh, another book we wrote called Womb Awakening, uh, Initiatory uh-huh. Wisdom from the Creatrix of All Life. And it was as we were researching Womb Awakening and, and going back into the origins of a prehistoric, what we called womb religion, that um, pieces kept coming through in our research about Mary Magdalene and the the lost side of Christianity. And some we included in the book, but a lot of it we just had to park to the side because it wasn't uh-huh. um, you know it wasn't the place for it. And and so so that was intriguing that this kind of current religious framework that we've got, when we started to research it, it, it had this thread that was going back to prehistoric times and a very different spiritual or religious um, outlook on life. And and it went all the way back, you know, that we can we can have you know, documents or research for at least 300,000 years. So that really puts it into perspective that, you know, for instance, the, the, the religion that Mary Magdalene is associated with is 2,000 years old. But, you uh-huh. know, we trace back um, the, what we're calling the womb religion to at least 300,000 years ago. And, and, you know, sourcing it in the Neanderthal um, people. And, and of course, it, it will have gone back before that, but we just don't have, uh, you know, the documentation or, or the evidence for that. And, um, and so, evidently, from the beginnings of time, people viewed our world so differently. They viewed it through the lens of a... a a womb that birthed and nourished and nurtured and created and dissolved and rebirthed. So it was very much a a magical philosophy, um, a, a metaphysical understanding of the feminine body and process in conjunction with the earth mysteries and the moon mysteries and and the relationship between the earth and the sun and the earth and the cosmos. So it was this very complex um, 
but beautifully simple in some way um, philosophy or spiritual tradition that was was rooted in the living earth and the living cosmos and 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 the magic in the bodies of women who obviously bring through a child and and as I often say I, I think in our modern world we we sideline the magical act of creation and childbirth because to really dwell on it would blow our minds because what we know is that science and the medical profession don't actually understand truly how a child is made, <laughs> you know, the practicals <laughs> of it. it and, and so it gets kind of fudged over. And if we really kind of dwell on it, meditate upon it, contemplate it, you know, it literally blows our mind because uh, a woman weaves this body together inside her so that there are two bodies, two hearts, two souls in one body. And she draws through a spirit, an interdimensional spirit from other dimensions into this, into this weaving and then births it out of her body. And and, and it's a truly magical act. And, and so for the ancient people, that was the first act of magic that actually mirrored the cosmogenesis of our entire universe. So it was, it was envisioned, envisioned like there was a divine mother who, who created the world in her womb and birthed us. So there was like a huge, beautiful, magical philosophy and and that was very reverent towards the feminine and towards the creative powers of the feminine and then as we see at some point something switched and we lose that reverence for the feminine and in fact you know there's a, a hostility towards the feminine well i think also when you when you do come down through time a lot of the, the the names that have been applied to the Magdalene, um, uh, you know, are negative, and yet um, they were titles. I mean, they the priests um, honored, and and through time they have been accused of being harlots and whores and all sorts of things. And so it 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 to me is is very amazing that. As I was reading through the book, I, I kept, you know, they, they would throw a term out, and you, you would throw a term out, and then I would realize that, that the real meaning of that term was an honorary meaning, not, not a negative label. Exactly, and, and, and one of the things to step back and realize is that language structures consciousness. So if people or our language is um, modified, it actually restructures our consciousness. So what we see through, you know, the language of the goddess in the last, you know, 3,000 years is that words that were reverential and honorific, celebrating the womb power of woman, have been restructured to have negative, almost demonic meanings. And that, in turn, has actually restructured our consciousness as a species so that we subconsciously feel that that which birthed us and created us is evil. So, so how could we love ourselves as a species if that was how our consciousness had been restructured? And, 
as we discuss in the book, you know, some of these words like whore, and we go into the word, um, you know, in, in our modern wor- world, whore is, a, is a, a terribly derogatory word, you know, used against women, you know, and um, and there's there's a kind of clue when you get these words that are used specifically against women, uh, that they're actually holding you know feminine power, and and in the book we outline the traces of the word, and and so it's it's interesting because in the Bible they talk about horasis, <laughs> which is an ecstatic <laughs> awakening or an ecstatic spiritual vision. And it has the word whore in it. So when you go go through a lot of words, you know, and it's H-O-R-H-A-R, so like harmony is comes from a word that is associated with whore. And, and the root of these words, as we describe in the book, means they are, they are words to describe primal generative feminine power. And they're associated with caves, with the deep, with uh, inside of mountains and, and and with the very concept of awakening or, or birthing uh, into the light. So 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 yeah. So we see how it's really sad, and then and then we have a you know religions that say uh, dismiss a certain person as oh she was a whore. But what I found very interesting about Mary Magdalene is nearly always in the in the medieval times. Because she had been deemed as a prostitute, you know, by the church and, and for people who've read more about this, we now know that there's nowhere in the Bible that actually says she was a, a commercial prostitute, you know. Um, uh-huh. This was put upon her. But actually the word that is mostly used to describe her in medieval times is not prostitute, it's harlot. And this is a word that goes right back down to Inanna and Ishtar and is used in the old Sumerian and Babylonian texts that clearly describes uh, a high priestess and a high priestess of these lost womb mysteries. When did when did this shift take place? It was it around the foundation of Judaism that that they they started to take away the the power from women and and um, subjugate them, or was it before then? I feel because the records are so unclear. You know, there's no one record, there's no one moment. I feel it was before then, and I feel that the reason why it is so unclear that we, you know, we ca- we can't lay our hands on that document or that scripture that says, "Haha, here here's what happened." My feeling is because it actually started to happen. In the times where you know people weren't writing, and uh, so I feel that it 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 started to happen, you know, maybe ten thousand years ago is is you know my personal opinion, and I feel that it was it it was a, a movement, a journey. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a one one time event. It was piece by piece by piece. You know, the powers of the feminine and their their power structures and their teachings and their temples and their rituals and their status, you know, bit by bit got dismantled and and every new wave kind of took part of their legacy away. And and we know that um, Dr. Margaret Murray, who was a, uh, you know, who wrote about these subjects, she records how in the temples in Egypt, 
if you go back in time, they record that there are, you know, priesthoods, priestesshoods of women who are um, leading the rituals. And then when you go, you know, that closer to our time now, that's completely disappeared. And the, the women who would have been leading the rituals are now... Um, reduced to being you know just dancers or just musicians um although music and dance was part of the temple arts of of the priestesses but you can see this shift that you know the women who led the spiritual rites uh devalued and demoted until finally in you know in 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 what we call the monotheistic religions, they're they're then they're cut out. They're just not there. You know, to, to this day, yeah. in some branches of the the church, Christian church, we, we cannot have a a female priest. Um, and and it's yeah. funny, you know, when we do the research, the one word that they will never ever use towards to describe people like Mother Mary or Magdalene is the word priestess. You you know, like with Mother Mary, you can be the 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 queen of the heavens and the universe, but you can't be a priestess because <laughs> that's it's too close to the bone of a lost story. Yeah, unfortunately, because I know there was a time when when um Christianity was basically being forced upon people, but they were still honoring the goddess. You know, the common folk were. It was the elite that really had to go along with whatever the religion was of the day. And, you know, if it was Christianity, they became Christians. And, and yet the people who did the field work and everything else, so they were still, um, they still had their, their, their idols that they, that they prayed to and that they, they worshipped and stuff like that. But it was, a, it was definitely a slow turnover. But, boy, when it turned over completely, it really did a job of it. And, and, there were, I yeah, think and there were almost three stages, you know, I wanted to point, because one is the reverence of the goddess, and then there's the actual human priestesses who serve the goddess, and then there's uh-huh. your ordinary woman. And when we go back to prehistory, what we see is all of those aspects. The ordinary woman who's birthing, you know, the new generation, she is honored, and the priestesses are honored, and the goddess is honored. And then as you kind of go down the line, suddenly ordinary women are not honored. So you often get, you know, pay, pagan um, times where they are worshipping a goddess, but they're not honoring everyday women. And then they knock the priestesses out. So, you know, towards the end, you get a situation where the, the goddess is as an abstract deity can be revered, but that does not translate into flesh and bone women being honored or revered or believed to have spiritual power. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know that the only place that I recall, and I I could be wrong, but at uh, the Oracle of Delphi was always a woman. Um, I I don't believe any man ever stepped in, although she would come forth with her whatever and then there had to be an interpreter that interpreted it, and those were usually men. Yes, and, and again, you know, we looked in the book, we, 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 we touch upon the Oracle of Delphi, and actually we did a huge amount of research on that that couldn't go in the book because it's such a fascinating topic. It actually deserves a book of its own. But again, the Oracles of Delphi, it, it looks like when you look at the research that they originated in African priestesses, 
and um, who, who brought their their you know their spiritual tradition uh, across the seas. And for a long time, it was a, a female oracular system. And then it, again, it gets taken over by the the, the god of light. And, and at that point, it's it's like the oracle becomes the employee of the god of light. <laughs> She's no longer, you know, the the divine being, the the channel of of Mother Earth, the Great Mother. She's she's now, you know, just the subservient employee of of the god of light and his priests, Apollo, and um, you know, and kind of under contract to 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 channel messages for him. And 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 as we've discussed, and then. Eventually, you just don't even have the concept of a female oracle um, at all. They're they're completely subdued and disbanded. And um, so, so you know, we see this. There's so much evidence, and we've tried to gather some of this in the book to to really show that. You know, one of the questions I had is that you know I'd I'd heard it you know thrown around. Mary Magdalene's a priestess and. You know, she's a priestess of the goddess. But we're told, you know, in, in conventional mainstream history that, you know, that there is no feminine spiritual tradition. But, you know, you only have to, you know, peel the veil back a millimeter and look through time. Oh, yeah. And there's ample evidence of an immense feminine spiritual tradition that was destroyed. And it's clear that... Um, Magdalene was a legacy holder for this lost tradition, which is why she's always percolating in collective consciousness, especially at the edge or the forefront or the pioneering edge. Well, I I think that the day is coming when when her legacy is going to be recognized because there are so many new texts that are coming out that they're discovering that give great credence to the fact that she was um, of, of wealthy, if not noble, birth, yeah. and that she did study in Egypt. And you want to go a little bit into that because it, it's it's fascinating. Apparently, Jesus as well studied in Egypt. Yeah, and actually, when we when we started writing the book, as we say, because it had come out of the research we'd done for the Womb Awakening book. It, we, we never we never started the Magdalene book with a set thesis that we were trying to prove. Instead, uh-huh. it was a journey and an exploration for us to ask questions and go down that down that rabbit hole. So when we first started, both Azra and I said, "Well, who do you think Mary Magdalene is? You know, just your gut instinct." And yeah. So I, I I felt you know she was she was maybe either um, you know Ethiopian Egyptian or, or possibly even uh, Celtic you know who had been taken in slavery, and Azra said no I I feel she is from Syria, uh, and okay. and that that area so so we did all the research and. At the end of it you know and there are no absolute conclusions that we can draw you know. But it does look like Magdalene originated, in all probability, from the area we now call Syria. But that actually Mother Mary was deeply connected to Egypt. And a lot of the texts discuss how um, 
Jesus lived in Egypt, how he studied magic in Egypt, how his mother had, you know, many connections to Egypt. So, so when we kind of traced it all, and, and I do feel that Magdalene obviously did study in Egypt too, um, but the really strong Egyptian connection seemed to be coming um, from Mother Mary. But again, as we describe in the book, um, Somehow, you know, the, these characters are often um, presented to us as, as very humble and poor, but that's very unlikely. <laughs> All the evidence yeah. suggests that they were, they were from noble families and they had resources. And, and because of that, um, travel and, and travel to study was, was easy. And, and, and just like now, you know, in the modern world, people from wealthy families children go around the world to study at the great universities of learning so it was back yeah. then so um what? so the, the the i think egypt and alexandria is a huge huge piece of the story and of where some of the teachings and trainings came from and and i think there's quite evident documentation to say that yeah i think we need to though define a word because today when you say magic, you think of sleight of hand, you think of, mm. you know, making elephants disappear, and, you know, but magic in that day was more of a spiritual magic than it was, it, it, it's not sleight of hand, it was, no, it was no. more, yeah, it, it's the so, greatest so it, magic. It's what we oh, call yeah, organic yeah. magic. It's uh, or yeah. we call it organic magic or or sophianic magic. And and what I mean by this is a great Zen quote that I I love, which is the world is its own magic. So it's again, it's the idea that 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 the world we live in has nothing special about it, and to to achieve something we call magic, we have to transcend the world we're in. Whereas Obviously, the world we're in is full of magic. You know, creation, yes. life itself is magical. And, and actually, the word magic, because if we look, Magdalene and magic, we've got the same root word, mag. Uh, and it right. means great. And, um, and Magadal, and these are all very ancient words that at their root uh, mean doorway or mother or great mother, uh, great weaver. So, so actually, even the origin of the word magic is is from feminine, embodied feminine spiritual power. So, again, even that shows us that today, even if we mention the word magic, we kind of have to explain ourselves that it's it's not something coarse or you know an illusion or a trick. It's something deeply embodied so so we we have this polarization as if there's god and then magic uh-huh. <laughs> you know two opposing um worlds but in 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 the ancient times um the 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 magic the magadal the mag the maga it it means the magic of the mother the magic of creation the organic magic the elemental forces that we can we can become at one with and grow bigger than us, more human self, and, and kind of call upon the vast resources of creation. And, and that was the high magic that really Mary Magdalene and, and everyone around her were accessing. 
And so when when Magdalene and Jesus got together, both having studied or had some connection to the Egyptian, mm-hmm. that they were they were a um, a match set, so to speak. Yeah, and and this is just my personal opinion. I I feel that maybe they met in the temples in Egypt. You know that makes sense to me. Uh, that that could have been where they connected. Because as we say in the book, we don't actually have any historical documentation that says this is the moment they met, you know, this is where they were and what they were doing. So we don't know that. But, you know, kind of when you piece it all together, it makes sense to me that that's, you know, where they met uh, in Alexandria, uh, in the temples of Isis. And, yeah, so, you know, two initiates, the sun and the moon, came together. Amazing, and, and, and you know, it just to me, um, you know, in the and you, you said you suggested in the book that the the wedding at Cana may well have been his marriage to uh, Magdalene, and yes, and as a he was looked upon as a as a rabbi as a teacher, and during that time, it was very it was almost assumed that a rabbi would be married. Um. I'm not sure why, but but it was, and and so, you know, and I think the other thing that you bring out is that there, you helped to bring out the fact that um, there was laughter and there was joy and there was, um, you know, I, I think so many people read the Bible and and it may feel very flat because, you know, he was. He did this, and he then he suffered, and he died, and he was the son of God. But the reality was, he was human as well, and it it kind of gives me a a, a greater understanding of the human of them, so that so that they they become a richer picture in my mind because of it. The, yeah, the, I really you know, agree. It, because yeah, it. it you know, you're talking of, of um, historical stuff that you've read about and, and you've honored and you've worshipped to a degree, and and then 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 you learn more about them as people. And apparently, Jesus did laugh and enjoyed that. You know, he he did enjoy joking around with the guys, and and um, there was a sense of. I mean, if you're a philosopher, you have to have a sense of humor, too, or, or nobody will talk to you. So, you know, he had to have a rich character that, that isn't presented in the Bible, which is too bad. And, and this, Barbara, is one of the key divergences in, you know, the early Christian tradition uh, that led to either, you know, the kind of authorized version and the heretical version. And the authorized version is that Jesus, in the manner of a Greek god, becomes a deity, you know, and and uh-huh. loses any humanity or human qualities, really, you know. And but in the heretical tradition, he was viewed as a viewed as a, a man, a prophet, a man, and and someone who had embodied an incredible divinity, but but still a human man, you know, with with everything that entails. So in that heretical path. Uh, which was deemed heretical, but just an alternative, you know, way of viewing uh, things. Um, 
that there is no, you know, of course he was married, of course he was human. There's nothing to say that our humanity is not compatible with our divinity too. And and so, you know, the heresies that continued on into France and, you know, Western Europe, they focused on this humanity of of Mary Magdalene and and uh Jesus and, and as you say I find that very rich and, and I sometimes find that even in the the New Age movement, you know, they have made Jesus and Mary Magdalene into ascended masters. Which though it's a different kind of um story, it still holds that essence that they're far away deities or divinities that, you know, are not yeah. in Embodied in in flesh and blood, and you know, and we we clearly have. I love to to read some of the details of the you know all the stories in the Bible, and it's like Jesus is drinking wine and you know hanging out with the wrong people, and you know <laughs> uh, Peter's mother-in-law is sick. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, so, I, I, and I love that. I love I love like you say. I think that it's it's about it's about learning to love ourselves again as human beings and celebrate the richness of our human lives. Well, and what I loved about, um, you know, in, in, in a lot of the stories that I have read, um, Magdalene comes off as somebody who just worships at his feet, but the reality is she was his equal, and mm. they must have had wonderful discussions, slant arguments, slant, mm. you know, debates um and and frankly i think that's part of what drew them together because she was his equal she was able to keep up with him and she was able to challenge him in places and and you know i i think in one place they say he says to challenge everything and if it doesn't stand up it isn't worth it well he doesn't quite say it that way but um so that so that you know he was he, she was his um you know almost alter ego because it was like you know or or maybe she was saying you know you might say it this way they might understand it better or something like that but but she was not a servant or subservient to him she was his equal absolutely and of course she was the anointrix so uh-huh. If she anointed him <laughs> into his Christhood, then she must have had some substantial power <laughs> within her and respect to be able to be the anointrix and the person who gave him that, you know, initiation. And, uh, you know, in, in my own personal feeling of it, when you read between the lines, you see that, that Jesus was very well respected. He was an incredible scholar. He'd studied uh-huh. with the the most learned people you know in in the lands the rabbis he was he was charismatic but you know a, a great scholar and a great teacher and and you just you know i just when you you get the feeling that you know magdalene um has a great energy and power and touch with the people and, and actually all the mary priestesses who surround him um you know it it feels like they bring the the fire and the light to to the whole movement and and you know i think without her christianity wouldn't have worked as well because she carried on his his philosophy his teaching 
filtered through her own her own gifts as well. But after the crucifixion, and she went to wherever she went. I mean, um, there's so many different stories about the different places she went. But but the the one that seems to hold the most is is you know France and then England, and and that there there certainly is there are churches that are dedicated to her and i don't i think you you said something i and i may have misread it but that that there are churches dedicated to mother mary and there are de- churches dedicated to magdalene and to john the baptist but are there any churches dedicated to jesus um well i, I presume there are lots of churches dedicated to jesus but what we see when we we look back on the really really old churches you know especially in mm-hmm. england and and france there is just this huge amount of churches dedicated to Mary Magdalene, John the Baptist, and Mother Mary, and um, and really these are these are the kind of the three characters in the Bible that you can see, it, you know, whoever the scribes were who who formulated it into a state religion would have preferred to have left these characters out because <laughs> they carry so many questions with them. But they were obviously um, so important and and so renowned in their day that they actually just could not be left out of the story. So 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 the information about them is you know we're never really given great information about them. Their stories are sidelined or or manipulated to to hide something. Um, but obviously the the heretic traditions because you know as we say in the book and you know and many books say this. The Christianity as a state religion came hundreds of years later, um, and there was, you know, a few hundred years where there were just many, many, many versions of what uh-huh. we now call Christianity, many versions, and eventually they were stamped out by, as it became a state religion and an orthodoxy, but many of those other versions continued, they just went into secret societies and were encoded secretly, or, you know, it's called sub-rosa, under the rose, which meant that, you know, it, it was the Magdalene heresies, it, it was the the mother mysteries, the, the teachings of the priestesses that were now forbidden, but they were continued, and, and they were encoded in, you know, cathedrals such as Chartres, and, you know, and, and many other churches in the Black Madonna, and, and this legacy was, was kind of hidden in plain sight, in many places in Europe, but especially in France and and England. And, you know, France gets kind of a big exposure to that. But, you know, when we did the research, there's like a huge hidden Magdalene tradition in England. And actually a lot of those traditions and churches were earlier than the ones in France. And, and it was just that after the Reformation in England, uh, that aspect of the church was completely, you know, annihilated. So um, uh, it's it's harder to see that in modern England. But, you know, again, just peak one millimeter beyond, below the veil, and there's a huge hidden Magdalene le- legacy in, in England. Also, though... Um it was said that Jesus did travel with his uncle, um, Joseph of, of Arimathea. And isn't there a well in England someplace that's called Jesus's well? Yeah, I mean, across England there are many legends in Cornwall, in Glastonbury, in Scotland, uh, that, that 
that describe um, Jesus traveling with his uncle, also Mother Mary being there, and also Magdalene at different times. So, um, and again, travel was was not a big deal if you were a wealthy family back then, especially if there was this trade connection. And uh, yeah, so you know, we discuss that in the book. Um, especially the connections with Scotland. And actually, in the book, we did write about their connections with Cornwall, but we had to cut that part out because the book was getting so huge. Um, but, yeah, there are, you know, a lot of folklore tales that really suggest that, um, that you know, Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, you know, Mother Mary, Mary Magdalene, were actually all visitors. So you know, after the crucifixion event, it makes sense that that was a place that they would have contacts and networks, uh, you know, a place to go to head to straight away. And, and of course, some people say it's England, some people say it's France. And as we describe that in the book, that there are, there, it's kind of pick your legend. <laughs> there are many legends. Um, yeah. But what, what it suggests is that they they were known in those lands and, you know, pre-crucifixion and post-crucifixion. I think one thing that, that I found fascinating was how you, um, how you have, have followed the tradition after their death and everything and, and how everything was kept sort of um, by inference. And and you know their story, their their philosophy, their tradition is preserved. And I, I you know I'm familiar a little bit with the Templar stuff, but Robin Hood and Maid Marian, I was fascinated with. You want to kind of explain how how they have carried on, or they have been a symbol of what they were, and they carried it forward in time through through them. Yes. So so. Maid Marian and Robin Hood were in no way part of the book <laughs> when we began it. <laughs> and they they kind of like emerged from the pages and said don't forget about us and and so uh, you know as you know in the book I, I also wove it in with my personal story in places um, uh-huh. and and actually my mom was born in Loxley which is the supposed birthplace of Robin Hood so right. I grew up immersed every place you go it's Robin Hood this, Robin Hood Cave, Robin Hood Pub, Robin Hood <laughs> Mound, you know. <laughs> it's just totally saturated with legends of, of Robin Hood. And um I can't even remember how it started, but we were over in England doing research for the book and we ended up going to its the church where legends say Maid Marian and Robin Hood got married, and we it, it's closed normally. So we you know we called the the you know the lady who takes care of the church and she met us and and showed us round and it's it's a church dedicated to Mary Magdalene. It's also a Knights Templar church. It also has stone head of a green man that they're trying desperately to hide <laughs> but I spotted and said what's that and she's like oh you know and and if anyone's familiar you know with Roslyn Chapel a famous kind of Templar uh, heretic um, church in Scotland that has lots of green mans and you know associated with Magdalene and Knights Templar so so this kind of really 
got the theme up of what is the connection. And um, and then we read a couple of good books as well that uh, that gave us the clue that Robin Hood was in all likelihood a Knights Templar and a devotee of Mary Magdalene. And it makes complete sense that it, he's an outlaw, yet he's and he's an outlaw to the church, but he's very devoted to Mother Mary and Mary Magdalene. And, you know, one of the time frames that he could have been alive is after the persecution of the Knights Templar. So then it all makes sense how you get this fraternity of men who are living to very high standards, like a grail code, but they're living in the forest and they're outlawed. And, and, you know, when you read into the text, they're really against the you know, the state church, the state religion. And, you know, Robin Hood, it's famous for he, he, he steals from the rich to give to the poor. But what it doesn't make explicit that he's often, they're often ambushing um, wealthy bishops <laughs> and taking the money from the church and, dis, you know, redistributing it to, to the ordinary people. So, so there's a whole story there. And, of course, uh, Maid Marian is is symbolic of of this Magdalene figure and and a, a, a you know a, a priestess of Magdalene a Celtic priestess of Magdalene, and um, yeah so we we put some of that in in the book and again it's like all these subjects you just pull a thread and you know an avalanche hits you so um, there's a, there's a there's a deep story to that and yeah there's just there's a way that Robin Hood and Maid Marian are almost the Christ and Magdalene of the Celtic lands. I it you know it it's it's fascinating because you you can see these kind of couplings in in all sorts of legends and stories and and it's it's as though the 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 feeling and uh, is being carried forward in time to sort of plant the seeds within the consciousnesses of the people that that you know this is what we're looking at here we're not looking at you know something that is just one dimensional it's multidimensional and it holds it holds a story for everyone because within everybody there is that that consciousness that that you know you're looking for that coupling first within yourself and then within you know, being with another person as well. But it yeah. to me, it's 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 a wonderful way of continuing this this um, this this goddess worship. And and it, it is it it doesn't say there's not a god. It's just saying you know don't forget the goddess. It's the other half. Exactly. And and what's fascinating is that what you see is. 2,000 years ago, as the priest, you know, the priestesses were, you know, going, the goddess was going, it was as if there was an awareness that she would return when the time was right, and that what uh-huh. people needed to do was to kind of bury the seeds of her legacy for the flowers to bloom at a later time. And, of course, this is what's happening now, but, you know, the centerpiece of the book, and again, this was, you know, we'd, when we very first conceived the book, we were just, we were just intending to kind of gather all the stories about Mary Magdalene and see, you know, who, who she was. And then we uh-huh. realized, well, no, we need to, to understand the lineage she came from. 
And then when we understand right. that, then we need to understand her lifetime. But then beyond that, we need to understand her legacy and how it was encoded. And then this brought us to the Gen Alter piece. And it, it's kind of a funny, funny story in the sense that how we discovered the Gen Alter piece was in the middle of writing the book, um, we had traveled to Gen because um, a... a a teacher of mine um, who's he, Japanese, he left his body in 2012. Um, he, he was an initiated Shinto priest, and he, he taught a form of, uh, it was called Seiki. But he, he, he left his body in 2012, and he was, you know, the master. And he taught with his wife, and his wife was continuing his legacy and teaching, and she was teaching in Ghent. So we went to spend the weekend with her, the, the master's wife, <laughs> and um, and it was as we got there that we realised, you know, we had a lot of time in Ghent that somehow there was something more that had called us, and it was Bavo Cathedral in Ghent. And of course, you know, when we're on this journey, it was it was you know kind of one of those cosmic winks that the bridge that had introduced us to Bavo uh, Cathedral and the Gen Altarpiece, which is one of the most audacious and amazing encodements of the Magdalene Mysteries in, you know, the history of the world, that it was this, that we'd come to follow the footsteps of a, uh, a master's wife, and of course she is a co-equal in, in the teachings. So, um, so, so then we saw the Gen Altarpiece, and we knew this had to go in the book because this is, you know, one of the most evocative, uh, clear, to, in play, you know, hidden in plain sight um, elucidations of the the heretical Magdalene traditions rooted in this um, indigenous prehistoric goddess worship. And and I will actually hand you over to my husband and co-author. Uh, Azra Batran to to go more into the Gen altarpiece because that became his his baby to uh, research <laughs> and write in the book <laughs> and and it and it was you know kind of amazing because it it took everything that we'd learned uh, looking at the priestess traditions and Magdalene's life and and it it makes it into a, a, a a philosophy it encodes it clearly as a philosophy with all the symbols that that convey this this lost tradition that is bigger even than just the story of Mary Magdalene and Jesus. So, so thank you, Barbara. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I will I will pass you over to Azra now. Okie dokie. Hello, Barbara. This is Azra here. Hi there. I, I, you know, when when we get to the Ghent altarpiece, you know, I I do want to also say that that it appears that so many artists who and, and you know you think about artists and you think about people who are very very true artists masters um, because you can be a technician you can be a technician or you can be a true artist, um, but the true artists. Um, hide more within the, the the symbology of what they're painting than most people understand. And and 
you know, it's you've used the term often in the book, you know, for those with eyes to see. And it, it's it's amazing how when you look at something um, like the Ghent altarpiece or, or, you know, even some of the other real masters out there too. I mean, I'm not saying that, that um, Van Eyck wasn't a master because he certainly was. But, but you have to understand when you're looking at a piece of artwork where that artist is coming from. And, and quite often you, you, you miss a lot of the things. I mean, I, I have to go back and, and relook at all, the, especially the Ghent, um, because once you understand that, that he was also an initiate of sorts and he was putting a message out there, and um, I guess maybe it's better if you tell it, how did, how did the Ghent altarpiece come about and how did the actual patronage of it um, how how that remained hidden in time. Right, right. Yeah, it's um. Well, I'll start. I'll start where Saren was was mentioning, and um, is that we took a we took a trip to Ghent, and we really had we had heard of the Ghent altarpiece. It's also called the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, which is the central panel of the of this uh-huh. huge polyptych. There are twenty four different paintings included in this massive folding panel, but but we saw it for the first time. We went to Ghent, and we stumbled into this beautiful uh, Gothic cathedral in St. Bavos where it's held and came face-to-face with this extraordinary painting, this extraordinary work of art. You know, it's, it's 16 feet across. It's 11 feet high. It weighs two tons. It's the size of a barn door or <laughs> a small elephant, you know. And in the middle of this painting there is an intense lamb staring back at you with with its blood flowing into a golden holy grail. And as we sat there and looked at it and then began to take in all of the the different paintings around the central panel, we just said to ourselves, Oh my God, there's something going on here and and like you said, we began to look at the painting more closely and and just revealed itself. And, and we wrote this, is once you see what's really happening, you cannot unsee it. And, and so the story of, of the Ghent altarpiece and, and its artist, Jan van Eyck, it begins in the early 1400s in what was then called Burgundy or, um, or Flanders, what's now modern-day Flanders, which is the Dutch-speaking province of Belgium but then was the Duchy of Burgundy. And, and really, Jan van Eyck, there's, very, there's not so much known about him. His life is, is in some ways a mystery, or the, the depth of it is a mystery. But what we do know about Jan van Eyck, the, the painter, was that by the time he was a young man, he was, he was commissioned uh, to the, the, best, you know, the, the best courts of the land as a court painter. And... Uh, and soon he caught the attention of the Duke of Burgundy, who was Philip the Good, Philip the Third, Philip the Good. And his power, Philip's power, was was equivalent in many ways to a king, because the Duchy of Burgundy was one of the most powerful states and, in Europe at that time, and really was fighting for its own sovereignty um, from France. It was in a war with France at that time. 
and and so he um, Phil the Good employed Jan van Eyck, and he employed van Eyck not just as a painter, but as a diplomat, as a spy, as a personal confidant. He paid van Eyck the equivalent of two hundred thousand dollars in today's wages with no stipulations. He could paint if he wanted to paint. He could not paint if he wanted to paint. He, he, <laughs> he, it, these were extraordinary terms. No court painter or painter of any sort had ever, had ever been treated in this way. You know, something was really happening. And Philip the Good and others referred to him as not just a painter, but an alchemist. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and the intrigue goes on from there. He... He had many different, he traveled all across Europe on state missions, and we don't know the extent of it, but what we do know is that where he traveled were, were centers of what we now call the heresies or the underground mystery streams that permeated Europe you know, you know, from after the time of Mary Magdalene to the present day. And, it, for example, he was he was fluent in the Templar tradition, and the Templars of course, were the group that built the Gothic cathedrals of Europe and then encoded the feminine mysteries into the actual architecture. So, so he went and, and spent time with, um, with King John of, of Portugal, who was a, a member of one of the, uh, really like a subsidiary group of the Knights Templars after they were disbanded by the church. And mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's a really um, rich history of his involvement and uh, or likely involvement in these mystery traditions, and so so that's a, a little bit of Van Eyck's background. He was no ordinary painter. He was he was a master. And then you begin to look at the the painting of the Ghent altarpiece, also called the Adoration of the Mystic Lamb, and this is one of the most influential paintings in the world in the history of Western art, at least. And and for some reason, Jan Van Eyck is not spoken about as often as someone like Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci, but it was really Van Eyck who was the primary influencer of people like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. He, uh, he essentially invented oil painting. So oil painting had existed in a, in a primitive form before Jan Van Eyck got a hold of it, but what he did with it was absolutely unheard of, stupendous, amazing. He, he brought oil painting to, uh, after his, after his uh, adoration of the mystic lamb, it became the dominant medium of painting for the next only 300 years. And not only did he bring it, you know, really, it was a, this is the work of an alchemist working with the, the pigments and, and chemicals of the earth to, to create something really that hadn't been done before in a technical way. But of course, his, his mastery went far beyond that and included in this painting are multiple different languages, Hebrew, um, Kabbalistic talismans encoded into the, into the art. There are, uh, well, 75 at least different species of plants that are perfectly uh, depicted that come from the Holy Lands and from places uh, far from Belgium at that time. So he was, he was a, bot, you know, a botanist as well. He spoke Greek. He, he read uh, the pagan Greek philosophers. He Brought it was at the time, of course, in the early 1400s, the church was the dominator in Europe. You know, nothing, 
nothing happened without the say of the of the Catholic Church at that time. And and he dared to paint a beautiful, sensual landscape that was really the first, um, in, amongst the first of the humanist or naturist kind of paintings to um, come into Europe since since you know since ancient ancient times when they had been banned by the church. But he dared to do this. He he dared to paint a naked uh, Adam and Eve, life size, literally six feet tall, um, and 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 the you know most minute uh, realistic detail, which was considered so scandalous at that time that it was the painting was banned by the Holy Roman Emperor for for a period. You know, there's there's this incredible rich history and and you know so so the adoration of the mystic lamb or the Ghent altarpiece is a, a profound profound painting. But what is extraordinary beyond extraordinary is the fact that it is it is hidden in what is hidden in plain sight. So the, the painting lives in Saint Bobo's Cathedral, it's the, the the Catholic uh the head of the you know the, the whatever it's it's a, the, the big Catholic church of the region. You know, the okay. the head of the, the diocese and and there it sits on the Eucharist altar. And but what it depicts is, is stunningly a picture of the goddess. And just like for those people who are familiar with Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code and and some of Leonardo da Vinci's work who encoded a, a picture of Mary Magdalene in The Last Supper, uh, controversially, uh-huh. but um, that's really what it is. And and different symbolism of, of male and female sacred union or the chalice and the blade or however you want to um, to talk about this um, this sacred union symbolism, well, Van Eyck did something a um, hundred years before Da Vinci that was that was even more audacious, even more bold. And really, the lines of flow in this painting, and you just you have to see it to know what I'm talking about. It's hard to just listening to understand it, but uh, but to go and look at the painting, and it's available online at the website closer to Van Eyck and amazing detail it was it was restored and and photographed and um, digitally at, at this incredible detail but you can see the body of the goddess with her legs in the sacred open in the sacred birthing position or sacred sexual position the altar is her womb the the lamb whose whose blood is pouring into the into the holy chalice represents the feminine blood of birth and menstruation that renews all of life, and it is it is bold. It was it's the kind of it's the kind of image that had anyone discovered it at the time, what he had done, he would have been tortured and killed, and everyone associated with him would have been tortured and killed. And and within the painting are, like I said, these these clues that that there was something there that you need to look deeper and that there was a mystery held within. And one of those clues is a, a talisman, a Kabbalistic talisman called A-G-L-A. Uh, uh, and it's a, it's an, it's an Hebrew phrase that was the sigil of John D, who was a famous magician and, 
advisor to Queen Elizabeth. And um, but there was a long hermetic tradition that this this sigil was a part of. So it's hidden in the floor tiles if you look closely. And also in the painting are the Knights of Christ, or really the Knights Templar. Now the Catholic Church was at war <laughs> with the Knights Templar and destroyed the order and was a part of their uh, torture and execution and, and, and complete disbanding. And so for an artist to include the, the actual, uh, some of the, the founders of the Knights uh, Templar movement in a painting was, was bold and you know, almost, you could almost call it crazy. I guess it was a very risky move. And, and and so so there was this there's really so much so much in in the painting that we go into in in a lot of detail in the book and but but really it's the story of the of the sophianic mysteries or this is a tradition of the sophia as the feminine goddess the embodiment of wisdom but also the 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 remains of the, the the feminine goddess of the divine feminine tradition that had been uh, banned in in the monotheistic religions. Yeah, it's it's an amazing um, piece of artwork. I mean, it's there are paintings on what the back and the front of each of the panels. Yes, exactly right. It's a so uh, people who are art aficionados have heard of of triptychs or diptychs, you know, which are a three-panel painting or a two-panel painting. This is a 24-panel painting whose wings fold into a closed position or an open position. And so, so Jan van Eyck, being a high initiate of the of the mystery traditions, continues in that in the mystery religions or the mystery traditions, there was an outer or esoteric teaching. And so, these are, for example, the parables that we that Jesus speaks in the Bible. There's a Outer or, or meaning, but there's a deep inner meaning for those in the know. And so, this this painting of the Gint altarpiece carries on in that tradition. When the when the panels are in the closed position, which is how they are or how they were for most of the time in in Jan van Eyck's day, they were only opened uh, for mass or for religious feast days. But most of the time, they were closed. Mm-hmm. And when the panels are in the closed position, you can only see. You can only see it's analogous to looking at the cover of a book. You can see hints of what is contained within, uh, and and it's so. But then once you open, once the panels are opened, it's it unfolds into this amazing cosmic drama where there are are two levels of paintings. There's the upper register that you go horizontally along the top and a bottom register, which go horizontally on the bottom of multiple panels. And the top panels detail, they're really a story of the heavens or of the gods. And the bottom panel is really a story of the Garden of Eden and the, the amazing divine spark that is, exists within nature. And, and it explodes in, in a multitude of colors and... and um, just it's it's really it was described by one art critic as a, a literally like a rock opera, <laughs> you know, just this amazing abundance and richness of of material and and you know it's again just filled with so many details of of this 
mystery tradition, this underground feminine tradition that was being transmitted. And so there are over 300 different people or figures that are painted with enough detail to identify some of the actual popes of that time or of Godfrey de Bouillon, who was one of the the founders of the Knights Templar and, and some yeah. of the pagan philosophers are identical. You can recognize their their faces, of course. And this, um, but nowhere in this painting is the actual character of of Jesus. And and in a painting of such ma- you know magnitude and with everyone else covered and <laughs> what, why is Jesus yeah. missing? What is that story? And uh, you know, uh, and we go into it, but but it's um, yeah, there's you know, it's it's um, it's it's just stunning. It's it is, I mean, vibrantly alive. There's no doubt about it. And and I, I love the fact that you know, with it open, Adam and Eve are separate, and they aren't united until you close it up again. Yes, that's so. right. That's right. Yes, exactly, and that's and that's one of the stories that's that's being told. The um, the if you look at the the closed panel or the back panel, you you see a a set of images that that really point to the tradition of the sacred union, or it's also called the Heros Gamos. It's the tradition of the bride and the bridegroom, the same tradition that is seen in the Song of Songs between King Solomon and Queen of Sheba, the same tradition, of course, that dates back to ancient Sumer, as it's now often called, but what was formerly known as Sumeria, and we prefer that term, and between Inanna and Demus, and, and, mm-hmm. and it's the same story as the story of Isis and Osiris, but this coming together of the of the masculine and feminine principles and and balance and in union, and from that the creation of of fertility on earth in essence and harmony in the heavens and and when you look at the at the closed back panels, you see the figures of of John the Baptist coming into union with a disguised Mary Magdalene figure who's disguised as John the Evangelist. But uh-huh. uh, John the Evangelist is um, feminine in appearance and carries the Holy Grail or the chalice with the serpent in it. And the serpent or dragon is a symbol of the feminine principle going back 5,000 years across cultures and, and artwork, the, the feminine creative principle. And, of course, in modern pictures of Mother Mary, she is riding, often riding on the serpent or dragon. That's her, it's the serpent or dragon and the moon are under her feet. And, and so we see that in the front, these two figures coming together. We see the uh, original chalice and blade or male and, and female images in the central in the central panels of the closed of the closed um, Ghent altarpiece, and it's really a, a hint of what's to be unveiled when it's opened. I mean, it's an amazing piece of artwork, and and you know, I would imagine that 
that you probably never get all of the little inferences that are here. But um, when yeah. you when you look at it, you I, how long did it take him to paint this? Well, it took six years to paint this, and considering that what it is and the amount of detail that went into it, because it's so detailed. It's detailed really at the level of, of what's called miniatures in the art world. Edged. So miniature works of art are very, very detailed. They can be detailed because they're so small, but a lot of the big art, you know, big pieces, you know, that are five, six feet across or what, whatnot, they don't have the same level of detail because it's so time-consuming. But this painting has the, the level of detail of a miniature, and the fact that he created this in six years' time, while at the same time going on diplomatic and, and, and likely espionage missions for, for Philip the Good, the Duke of, of Burgundy, who was his employer at the time, I mean, it is, it's astonishing. And, and the fact that with it, he really invented a whole new medium of, of art, the oil painting. And again, there had been a few people who had played with it, but nothing at this scale. And, and so, yeah, tr- truly, truly stunning. And it's one of the... It, Jan van Eyck is, is certainly underappreciated. And even the art, art critics understand that it is one of the most influential, if not the most influential paintings of the Western world. Um, but it's, you know, truly um, stunning. And it was known to contain a mystery, right? It's uh, one, of, one of the interesting things... The, spec, the story of the Gandalfer piece after its creation is almost as interesting as the story of its creation, and that it is the world's most stolen painting, it's, uh, having been stolen at least six times and involved in, in 12 uh, sort of uh, cases of, of intrigue aside from the, the, the stealings. It was famously stolen by Hitler and the Nazi party and then counter-stolen by uh, by by um, another German uh, general who had the audacity to try to steal it from Hitler, and then Hitler stole it back. <laughs> you know oh, why? Wow. Why were they doing this? And and the the really the legend is that that Hitler uh, and the Nazi Party, which really formed from an occult group that was likely dedicated to the misuse of feminine magic. Uh, as it was portrayed in the, the the movie Indiana Jones and the the Secrets of the Lost Ark or whatever that the name of that movie it was, so the, the Nazis were actually trying to uncover these these talismanic objects, the the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy Grail, and they believed that this painting contained a map to the Holy Grail, the actual Holy Grail, or uh, the the keys to its understanding. And so that was one of the reasons why it was so, so sought after. And is there and is there one is there one particular panel still missing? There is one panel that's still missing. Yes, that's um, it's a a panel called the Just Judges, which uh, it was stolen in 1934, and it has never been found. And it, it's there are there are many theories about who stole it and why and how it happened and. And um, it's interesting because the Just Judges is a it's a panel off to the side, and in some ways, you would think it would be one of the least significant panels in the painting. But obviously, it, it has a profound 
significance, and someone on the inside was in the know. And like you said, there's people have written about this painting as probably more than any other painting in terms of art critics and and people. You know, there there have been many academics who have spent their life dedicated to understanding the painting and all the different symbols as um, you know traditionally as traditionally read. So so Van Eyck was a master of using the symbols to paint two different stories. On the surface, the, it's the story of a, a Catholic adoration of Jesus the, as the Lamb of God and his blood is the blood of sacrifice that saves humanity. That's the surface or, or a traditional interpretation. But the same symbols tell a, you know, a strikingly different heretical story, what's considered heretical, but what's really dating back to the pre-Christian values of goddess and, and earth religions and and yeah there's you know so there's when we began to uncover the the actual meaning it came piece by piece and it it really came over a two-year period so one the first thing to fall into place was this optical illusion uh, we we now call it an optical revolution of of the lady in the landscape the goddess in the hidden in the landscape of earth and and that once you see that you just you can't deny it and and then piece by piece they the other the other pieces begin to fall into place and and of course we included it in this book the magdalene mysteries because mary magdalene features prominently and in the in the Gnostic tradition or in the Sophianic mysteries of the original Christians, so of Mary Magdalene and Jesus and and the earliest Christians, Mary Magdalene was the embodied incarnate priestess uh, of the of the goddess. So she was representative of the goddess, a human woman, but she carried that energy. And she is hidden in the painting with her alabaster jar behind a rocky outcrop as as was written in the song of songs that that the bride hides behind the the, the steep cliff and the steep path and the rocky outcropping that's where you'll find her and that's where you find her in the painting and with a symbolic m for for magdalene or mary magdalene and and um you know many other many other feminine symbols and and so she is there's two two pieces of this painting one is the goddess in the central panel and then there's Mary Magdalene who is the the woman who who really embodies that energy on earth i think it's it's fascinating that that she is often dressed in um you know green and red or green mm. or red and you know i just have always figured, well, that's the colors they had the most dye of or whatever, but but they they relate to different things, which I was mm-hmm. not aware. Yes, yes, exactly. In, the, uh, in traditional Catholic iconography, the colors symbolize certain things, and the colors are assigned to, to Mary Magdalene. She was traditionally depicted in green or red, and the Virgin Mary or the Mother Mary was traditionally depicted in blue and white, and that's how you were supposed to draw them. And <laughs> you know, and, and that's how people easily recognize these these characters and, and paintings. And 
And so, but the the colors have a far older and far deeper meaning than just being in, you know arbitrary colors, but they relate to the the four elements or what we refer to as the elemental mandala. And in all in traditions all over the world, the the elements, uh, the four elements of earth, fire, air, and water are really a mandala or map of of existence. And so the medicine, they're called sometimes medicine wheels in the Native American traditions, they're, um, uh, but they're present in, in indigenous traditions the world over. And so these colors fit squarely on that wheel with, with green being the color of the living earth. And so uh, plants in the, the earth and red being the color of fire, the element of fire, and white being the color of air, which is traditionally assigned to the Virgin Mary, and and blue, the element of water, again traditionally assigned to the Virgin Mary. So she was allowed, <laughs> right in the and the Catholic tradition, the the whole feminine was was split into the maternal components, which was as embodied by Mother Mary, and the um, well, the, well, really, the, the sexual component, so the sexual feminine, which was embodied in, in Mary Magdalene. And so Mary Magdalene could be earth and fire, Virgin Mary could be air and water, but of course, all of the elements are, are part of the, the, whole, the whole feminine. And so, so exactly, the, the symbols go, go back a long time and, and have different meanings than what's, you know, the, the, the traditional narrative. Yeah, and you know, you you bring right to the fore the fact that that artwork really has to be felt and seen, um, mm. rather than I mean, it's hard on the radio to to take that across, but yes. but there are messages in in the um, symbology that is there if you only take the time to understand them. Now yeah. was it was it Van Eck that that uh, did the paint painting of um, I guess now I don't know if it was it was Mother Mary or if it was uh, Magdalene but but she was nursing a baby and she was it Saint Bernard she she um, squirted some milk too yeah yeah so so um, Van Eyck did thirteen paintings of the Virgin Mary. And you know, so he did. He did very many. And on, we'll, I'll I'll come back to that. But the what you're referring to of the of of Mother Mary pausing her breastfeeding of the infant baby Jesus and squirting breast milk over to Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, who um, then received his enlightenment through that act. It's called the Lactatio Bernardi in the Catholic tradition, and was considered a miracle, and one of the reasons why Saint Bernard of Clairvaux was sainted, who, <laughs> by the way, was a, one of the founders of the Knights Templar. And if you understand what that what means, what a coincidence! You, yeah, yeah, what a coincidence! And hmm, how did that happen? You know, um, but of, yes, Bernard of Clairvaux was was instrumental in this underground tradition, and so in, in the underground stream of the Magdalene mysteries and the Marian mysteries, and was one of one of the great proponents of both Mary Magdalene and the Virgin Mary, and and essentially boosted their status to um, to heroes in the medieval time. And 
but it, it is yeah this this painting of 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 Saint Bernard being enlightened by the breast milk of Mother Mary is is really extraordinary and and this is the tradition that informed Van Eyck so Jan Van Eyck and so in in his depictions of the Virgin Mary which again we need to uh, take a step back and understand that that although Mary Magdalene and Virgin Mary appear to be two different characters to um, most people, two clear and distinct characters who are very, very different. They are, are different aspects of, they represent different aspects of the divine feminine in addition to being in, incarnate human women in their, in their day, but they also represent a deeper energy. And so Van Eyck was a devotee of both of these Marys. And so he painted 13 different astounding paintings of the Virgin Mary and on many of them, she wears red robes and, you know, scarlet, flowing, sensuous, voluptuous red robes. Uh, and the baby Jesus is emerging through the robes almost, that you know, the, the folds of the robes actually represent the, um, the, the birthing um, labia or vulva of the woman. And, you know, and this, is, this was what Van Eyck was Conveying symbolically through the art, of course, it would be very controversial if if uh, that was well known at that time. But that's uh, indeed what he was doing. And Virgin Mary was considered the the throne and the the seat of God and the mother of God. And and in this role, she was herself divinized and. This is how she was regarded by Jan van Eyck and Bernard of Clairvaux and by a lot of the people in the underground stream. And so, so her, her womb was literally the altar at which uh, people came to pray. And looking at it from this tradition, which, of course, is considered very heretical to, in, the, you know, in the traditional Catholic narrative, but this was a well-understood phenomenon that dated back thousands of years in the pre-Christian traditions. And the original Lady in Red, as in the earliest written records, was Inanna of Samaria. And so this isn't just a metaphor. <laughs> she, the, the high priestesses and, and goddesses of Samaria um, literally wore red robes. The high priestesses um, in their, um, in their the ceremonies of induction into office would wear red robes and red turbans and, you know, red underpants, as it's written. You know, it's, it's, a, um, it's a very literal um, a very literal image. It has a long tradition, and it wasn't just in the Sumerian culture. It was in the Phoenician and Syrian cultures. It was in the, the, the ancient Indian cultures and, um, you know, many cultures across the world, and, and including East Asian cultures, um, this tradition of the primal creative feminine, the primordial creative feminine in the red in the red robes and and so yes, Jan van Eyck was um he he portrayed all of this. Well he kept it alive underground. He did. That's and, right. And, That's right. And I think it's it's really important to understand that, that these are aspects of all of us that um mm. You know, we're we're looking for a balance within within our own consciousnesses. Most of us, you know, it's sort of like above the um, archway to the um, 
Oral of Delphi. It was Know Thyself. Mm. And right. and I think that that has been a message through time. And when you come into you know today, where where everybody's trying to, um, especially everybody who's on a, a spiritual journey, is like you know I, I'm I, I'm journeying into myself, and it's it's sort of there's a, there needs to be a recognition of the positive and the negative, and I don't mean that as good and bad. I mean positive and negative, male and female, mm-hmm. and and that that. Until you have that wholeness, you can't share really that well with another person who hopefully is is, is whole as well. Mm-hmm. And you can't ever reach the bottom of understanding because it goes back so far. Yeah, well, that's right. And in the East Asian traditions, for example, the idea of yin and yang are the underpinning of the spiritual philosophy in the, or the masculine and the feminine or the dark and the light or these sac- the sacred duality at, that exists on earth and the, the cycles and the phases, the waxing of the moon, the waning of the moon, the tides ebb and flow and, and these poles are Im- embodied in this, in this sacred union and when one half of the equation is left out, the world suffers and, and this is the story that the world has experienced over the last several thousand years with, in the, in the Western culture at least, but really the world over, with the loss of, of the feminine story, or the loss of the, femi- the story of the feminine divinity. And, and, you know, beyond just the, including, of course, the central importance of, of women and, and the, the feminine as it's embodied in, in and people and humans, but also these these principles of compassion, of feelings, of of psyche and dream and intuition and the non logical mind, the the deep mystery, the you know, the the void that creation births from. That's how it's one of the one of the most common creation myths across traditions is this great dark sea the that of unmanifest potential from which everything births. This is the great, great feminine. And without that, without that cosmology, without that, without that story, the world goes haywire. And we, we create our, our, our myths or our stories are not simply stories. They're really creative scripts or directive scripts. And our culture creates in that image. And so when we create in an image where we have left out the feminine half of the universe, we create a crazy world, a world that in time destroys itself. And, and so the, the remembrance of, of these lost feminine teachings is critically important. Well, you know, we live within the story. Um, you know, unfortunately... We we live in spite of it in many places. I mean, just just in the four seasons, um, you know, we don't understand how it's signi- significant of different aspects of ourselves, mm. and um, we don't honor those different aspects. We, like I said, we live um, in spite of it instead of within it, and allowing it to influence and 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 to flow with the energy that's going on. Um, mm-hmm. I think so many people think about 
spirituality rather than experiencing it. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And right, this is one of the the differences in the what's called a, the, the masculine experience of spirituality and the feminine experience of, of spirituality. And these are these are words, they're constructs, but they're they're maps that to understanding something really important and and this is one of the one of the central ideas that, that you're saying is to think about spirituality or to, to understand it with our logical rational brain is one thing and really important it's an important piece of it but to feel yeah. it to feel it in our in our hearts and in our bodies and and to into you know to walk the journey with our feet on a on a pilgrimage uh it, it's an entirely different experience and and one that if you miss it, your life is so less rich. And if you immerse yourself into it, a whole new world opens up. Yeah, I often use the analogy of it. You can live in a black and white world or a technicolor world, whichever mm. you choose. Yeah, exactly. And, and it does that. It adds a vibrancy to everything around you and within you. And um, what I love is it's a journey that you never you never reach the end of because there's mm. always something else. And and mm. I think in in my lifetime, you know, there have been moments when I thought I have arrived, but, you know, and then the message back is, well, yeah, you arrived at a plateau, but there is another plateau. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like, okay, so we start at square one again and we keep going. But But it is an amazingly wonderful journey. And, yeah. you know, I believe personally in past lives, so I believe that it's a journey through time itself mm. and history. So that, yeah. so that, and, you know, sometimes male, sometimes female, and and that helps to provide the balance within you at this particular point in time. And mm. so many people negate out that other half of themselves, whichever mm. they don't have. and And it's sad because... Um, creativity and inspiration and, in, and intuition are, are often, you know, denoted to the feminine side, and yet some men, especially musicians and artists, are able to blend the two halves together. And yeah. and yeah. and when they do, they magic happens. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's the story when these when these two principles come together and co-create then you know true magic or a true creation or you know profound evolutionary unfolding happens as a result and these energies aren't they can be contained in a woman's body a man's body uh, and and everywhere in between you know the world is is incre- incredibly diverse and and well yeah yeah and you know i i think so many people when you when you talk about birthing, most people talk about a child or something. Mm-hmm. But mm. um, it, men can birth music and can birth art, and it's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe less blood, but but you know mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. you you can you you when you are are being creative in any way shape or form and you're working on a project of any sort you are birthing that project mm-hmm. um a long time ago i painted um uh i used to do personal mandelas and i i did a deck of oracle cards that were mandelas 
and mm-hmm. the nine and it took exactly nine months from the first drawing to signing with a publisher, which I thought was mm-hmm. interesting. Wow, but amazing! That that nine month time, I literally don't remember. Now mm-hmm. I got up every morning and I went and I taught a full day of school. I came home and I painted for 12 hours. I got a couple of hours sleep and I went, I did it all over again and Mm -hmm. I never missed a little league game or anything like that. But, um, I honestly, you know, I have flashes of remembering painting one of them. I don't remember the drawing of them. I, and and I'm not an artist. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, well, if your definition of an artist is you've sold artwork and you've made money from it, then I have. But mm-hmm. but um, it, they came through me. They they I birthed the deck of cards, and mm-hmm. and once I birthed them, I stopped painting mandalas. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know it was it was a birth process, and I would imagine many many really good artists are, are the same way. Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, they had, they birthed material. They brought material through them. And you do that, musicians do that too. So that I think today we're coming to a time where where people as a whole, and, and a lot more people than, than used to be, are are more into expanding themselves spiritually and, and allowing themselves to, to sort of incorporate both halves of themselves together. I think we're, we're at. A, I feel we are at a time where um, this aspect doesn't need to be quite as hidden as it has been for centuries. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely feel that's true. There's just there's an opening, a really important opening to bringing back both halves of, of the equation. And it's really interesting. There's a corresponding yeah, there's a corresponding anatomy in the brain that we wrote about in our previous book, Womb Awakening, that there are actually two different brains within our human brain. There is the cerebral cortex, which is responsible for thinking, uh, for the most part, you know, logical, rational decision-making, and you know, and a few related activities. And then there's the cerebellum, which is Latin for the little brain. It's a smaller in physical size brain in the back of the head, so it's the back brain, but it contains 70% of the neurons in the body, It can, in the, which is the, the cerebral cortex, something like 25%. So <laughs> most of the brain power actually resides in our cerebellum, and it's the cerebellum which is responsible for She's really the governor of, or the the architect of all unconscious phenomenon, including creativity, intuition, um, the you know what we would call psychic events, and um, that all arises. And and the also incredible, our incredible human ability to perceive beyond the five senses, it, that all resides in the cerebellum and. So we, you could, you could think about it as a feminine brain and a masculine brain that coexist within the same head in all humans, and and that's really that's a really remarkable piece of the puzzle as well. There's there was a, a 
study, I forget who did it, but they, they looked at the brains of um, um, distant past, way distant, primitive man, and women had a fairly balanced brain, you know, left side, right side. And men, they're, they're, the dominance in, in them was in the, um, you know, protection, hunting, creating food, creating lodging. And, and so that side of their brain overwhelmed whatever was feminine within them. And, and then over time, um, they have come back so that, that, that men's brains um, are more balanced in the, 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 they have the, the left and the right are, are basically more balanced than they have been mm-hmm. in ages. So mm-hmm. understanding that, and understanding that the the goddess is still alive and well in our midst, how do you foresee the future? I mean, mm. how is this going to happen? How is how do you foresee um, the goddess? I mean, I, I I kind of want to say the goddess because I don't want to tie it to Christianity so much. So, mm-hmm. how do you see the goddess coming back into our lives? and helping us mm-hmm. to balance our physical lives as mm-hmm. well as our mm-hmm. spiritual and emotional. How do you foresee that happening? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I love how you, you know, you, you, the last thing you said was how, do, how does it come into balance our physical life? And, and what, um, what I and, and, and my wife Sarah believe strongly is that our bodies and matter itself holds an amazing divine spark and an amazing magic that we are becoming more and more connected to, more and more aware of, and more able to access and work with this energy. And I feel, I mean, I don't know the future, right? This is a a speculative question. what I do feel and yeah. I think many people feel <laughs> is that we're really at the edge of some new birth. Something has to give. Something has to shift. We're in the midst of the sixth great extinction. <laughs> and yes, it's we not, are. <laughs> it's, yeah, so when the animal species and the plant species go, what happens to the human species? Well, I just feel that something is in the process of emerging, and there will be a great emergence and centered in the the natural magic that resides within within our bodies and within earth and within the plants and and uh, and this is really the heart of the sophianic vision that was pioneered in many ways by Jesus and Magdalene and yeah and um so I, you know, I, I really, hold on one, one moment, and uh, just one second, I'm sorry, I'm just, we have a young um, child, <laughs> just five months, and every now and then she needs our immediate attention, so give me one okay. moment. And so, anyway, so, um, so yeah, so I, this is this is my feeling of what's what's coming next. I think it's really a uh, a, a maturing or uh, the next evolutionary step of our relationship to to the the magic within our own bodies and within Earth, and 
whatever the veil is that separates us from that now, if there is a veil, for, for some people there might not be, uh, that's going to um, dissolve and a whole new yeah. reality will, will become apparent. It's like you know the Aldous Huxley quote, when the doors of perception are cleansed, everything will appear infinite. And, and he was referring to matter, to, to all of life, you know, not just transcendent spirituality, but really, in, you know, embodied, embodied magic, embodied, um, you know, in, infinity. Yeah, I think I, I totally agree. And, and I think also that, you know, I, I believe everyone has um, a spark of the infinite within them. Hmm. And and I think and, and I believe that the more balanced you are, the more aware that you are, the brighter that that spark is. Hmm. And I believe that the spark that that, that Magdalene had, that, that Mother Mary had, that Jesus had, I, I believe that their spark was just as big as your spark and my spark and everybody hmm. else's spark, and hmm. that. We can fan it into a flame if mm. we come into balance and understanding and compassion within mm. ourselves. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And that was really the teaching, you know. And this is one of the things we, we came to in the writing of this book, is that, you know, Jesus taught uh, that, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm doing these things, but you can too. <laughs> I'm teaching yeah. you not... I, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I, I'm not here to be your savior. You, you have these abilities as well. You know, I've, I've touched right. them, but people will come and do greater things than me. This is one of the, the things that Jesus said. And, you know, the, the point, the point is, is that this divine spark, like you said, is, is within everyone. And, and this is, was at the core of the Magdalene, of Magdalene Yeshua's teachings. And, how to access it, to become it, how to touch into this uh, extraordinary, ordinary, you know, this extraordinary, extraordinary, ordinary, you know, that, that which is yeah. in all humans, but which is extraordinary or which is divine or which is magical. And, you know, I think everybody has the capability of doing that. And, and I don't believe that he wanted to be worshipped. He wanted to be understood. He wanted his, 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 he wanted his, the seeds he was planning to grow, and probably it frustrated him that they needed a little more um, manure than was available at the time or whatever. I mean, he, mm. he, 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 he gave, you, he gave everyone, made, he made everyone aware they have a map within. Mm, and it's exactly. not for another person to give it to you. It's for you to find mm. it yourself within yourself. Right. So that, so that. So that the coming of um, the goddess is basically more bringing our our understanding of of where we can reach to for tools to get through our life and to approach our life in a better way. Um, mm. They're 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 male and female. They're not just one. They're mm. and, and neither is uh, is is over the other. They it's a shared companionship within ourselves. And mm. you know, and, and there are times that one takes over, and you know, if you need to, if if you need to survive something, then you, then the male half takes over, and if you need to understand why you had to do it, you, the female takes over. But mm. I mean, there's a give and a take. It's not a 
dead center thing. It's a sharing. Mm. It's a blending. It's a weaving. Mm-hmm. Right, and, weaving and, or a flow between the two, yeah. Yeah, and and so the, the the understanding of of the feminine and the masculine to coming together, I think we're at a point in time where where a lot more people are open to the understanding of it, and mm. and you know if 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 humanity survives for another thousand years, hopefully we'll come into that time and place. Either and if not, then then there will be. Uh, you know, approaching a seventh extinction, and we'll we'll start all over again. But so it's not the end of the world. I mean, spirits are eternal, so the spirits will come back, mm-hmm. and you know, half of them will probably say, "Oh, they screwed it up again." And it, it, but but I don't think we're going to screw it up. I I think mm-hmm. that 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 there is that that element within all of us that that there is an awareness that there is something more. Mm-hmm. And and it's not it's not you know alien entities coming and rescuing us from anything or we're waiting mm-hmm. for the mothership. It's mm-hmm. it's it's understanding what we ha- we carry within ourselves is as precious as the ark of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And maybe exactly. maybe the secret is that we all carry the ark of the covenant <laughs> within us. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and that was the. You know, it's it's so interesting to look into Catholic theology and to see that that Virgin Mary was regarded as the new Ark of the Covenant, and and the in the really in the Cathar circles, it was Mary Magdalene who was considered the new Ark of the Covenant, and and that that Ark goes back to the pre-Christian traditions of Egypt, and where the image of the Ark is, as it was crafted by Moses and it, it comes from the Egyptian traditions, and it was really the goddesses Isis and Nephthys who were the uh, stood guard around around this ark. And so, yes, yeah, so I, I I would agree. We we all we carry this this incredible ark within us. Maybe it and isn't. Maybe it isn't even a thing. Maybe it is a consciousness. Mm, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, and 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 or both, you know. So, but yeah. but certainly, there's a consciousness of that arc, and and the the you know the the divine that divine container that we carry. Well, you know, it's it. You know, you stop and you think about it, and and you realize that that if it's consciousness, then, then everyone can achieve it. It's not. Mm something that is beyond our grasp and mm. for people to be searching out a treasure when the treasure is within mm. <clears throat> is mm-hmm. you know but but there may be a treasure too i don't know the templars they had a lot so they may have definitely mm. hit mm-hmm. some, something but but in reality it's knowledge and it's wisdom mm. that that yeah. that is the important thing and and mm. Everybody can achieve it, but nobody can teach it to you. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. And that was that was one of the extraordinary things about the the mystery schools, of, uh-huh. well, that have existed for for so long, you know, thousands of years, and were very prominent at the time of Jesus and Magdalene, and and that was the the process. It was a process that that the people experienced. 
and it couldn't be taught. It could only be experienced directly, you know, and and it was very much a state of consciousness or an internal experience. Those were the great mysteries. It wasn't an external treasure of some sort, but yeah. that really was I mean, internal. I, you know, most people will think that it's it's strange to say, but it can't be taught, but it must be learned. And mm. it's personal experience. And mm-hmm. it's personal it's personal honesty with yourself. And mm. um cool stuff. Cool stuff. I just yeah. noticed how 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 late the time was getting. Um I, I would you I first of all the book is Magdalene Mysteries, uh The Left Hand Path of the Feminine Christ. It's a great book, but you're gonna have to read it slowly. Mm. I mean to to get it all. And mm-hmm. um you have a website and, and the book is on Amazon. It's also on my website, uh the link to Amazon. So is, are there links or things that you'd like to share with people to let them know where you're going to be and what you're going to be doing? Yeah, yeah. if anyone would like to be in touch with us, we have uh, a website each at the moment and a third uh, blooming, but azrabertrand.com for myself and sarenbertrand.com, S-E-R-E-N, uh, bertrand.com for, for Saren, and there'll be more to come, but if you like to to stay in touch or learn more about what we're up to, that's the way to to reach us. Okay, and the 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 other book was the Womb Mysteries. It's called Womb Awakening: Initiatory womb Wisdom awakening. from Yeah, yeah, Womb Awakening. Okay, are you going to be um, on any shows or anything coming up? Um, well. Um, People invite us to um, to shows from time to time, and we often accept. So um, I, I'm sure we will be, and uh, <laughs> e- yeah, I'm sure we will be. I am, and this 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 show will be up on YouTube, by the way, by tomorrow, and um, certainly available in archive. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to to kind of uh, tag team with the baby, and. Uh, haven't heard a peep, so she must have been great. And um, I do thank you both, and I look forward to talking to you again. And um, maybe we'll do something more with the Ghent, um, with the Ghent panels. Maybe we'll do something that, that where we can look into each of the different panels or something like that. Yeah. But I'll, I'll, yeah. I will be in touch with you, and, and we'll see if we can't figure something out. Well, thank you, Barbara. It's been wonderful to be on on your show, and uh, we're we're very excited and look forward to whatever the future brings. Me too. Thanks so much again, and thank you, everybody, for being with us and sharing your time with us. I know how precious it is. And um, check out tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, but yes, tomorrow. Mark has a show tomorrow evening on Tuesday. He's got... uh, whose first name I forgot, but Churchwood is his last name, and um, I, I should be more up on this. I really should be. Jack Churchwood is on Mark's show tomorrow night, and that show as well will be up on YouTube. Have a wonderful day, evening, and morning, and stay well, stay happy, stay healthy. Bye-bye now. <laughs>